What is going on, everybody? It's me, your host, Nicholas Willard, sitting back, chillaxing on my couch in my new studio. I got about half the shit out of it. It's still crammed full of boxes, but I can sit on the couch, so I'm not complaining. I don't have any news this week. No, no weird news going on. Um... I did have a little housekeeping to go over real quick. Uh, I'm going to try something new. Here at Almost Canon, we try to put out a, you know, one episode a week. We're pretty good at it. I think we've, over the course of almost a year, we've, we've missed, I don't know, one, two weeks maybe. And as my wife is due any day now, like I said last week, it could be any day. I want to try something different to free up a little more time. Cause because researching these episodes, like I tell you what, it's not it's not like you just jump on Wikipedia for an hour uh and, and everything's done. I mean, this the re- you know, when you research these episodes, it takes days and days and you you gotta go through all sorts of, you know, I'm probably on some sort of government watch list from all the websites I've been on. Uh but I wanted to try to, you know, I tried every now and then I'll talk about new new movies that we that I've watched or or movies that I've rewatched and bring them up. And, you know, I love movies. I love movies. I've, I've loved them since I was a kid. I was an only child. Uh, so it was really all I had was was movies and video games. And the outdoors growing up. So so movies have always been a staple in my life and and what I wanted to try was making one episode a month you know probably the last episode of the month would be a review of a movie that deals with the unknown uh let's see what I can think of off the top of my head I think the first one we're going to do is it so it is obviously you know a supernatural creature He's like this alien god from, you know, the far-flung reaches of the the the, the universe. Uh, another good one that I can think of off the top of my head would be Outbreak. You know, it's a government-designed biological weapon that that you know breaks out and everyone's getting sick and you know, or maybe like the Crazies would be another one. It's another, you know, biological weapon that that gets out and causes everyone to go crazy. Um, let's see. My studio is just lined with bookshelves. So I got all my 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 movies piled up here. Let's see. I got Apollo 18. Where they go to the moon and they collect these these alien moon rocks. Um, Men in Black, Jumanji, Cowboys and Aliens. Maybe even without a paddle. I mean, it's a it's a treasure movie. They're after D.B. Cooper's treasure in that movie. Uh, the Mummy. Oh, shit. The Mummy. Oh, one of the greatest movies ever. I don't know. You, you get the point. You, you, you get what I'm saying. You know, these movies that deal with the unknown. There's tons of them out there. Tons and tons of them out there. And what I wanted to do was I was planning on uh, 
working with Nick from East Coast Urbex. We did an episode with him a while ago. He was the, the urban explorer who saw the demonic creature at the Elmcrest Sanatorium in Connecticut. Uh, so, yeah, it's something I want to try, you know, take a little little pressure off my back. See, now all we'll, all we'll have to do is, you know, watch the movie, take a few notes. It'll be fun. Um, and also... Spooky season is right around the corner, and there there are some top contenders for this movie list that I'm putting together, which I'm excited for. I mean, I don't know. You guys probably don't want to hear me go on and on about movies, but I'm I'm talking Scream One, uh, and don't laugh. Coraline, Coraline is a great fucking Halloween movie. Like that is some scary ass shit. Oh my god, uh. I love that uh Johnny Depp Sleepy Hollow movie. It's just like a it's just like a Halloween classic. Hocus Pocus, like they just came out with a Hocus Pocus Lego. Oh, good times. Good times we're living in. You know it's you know it's the best when uh they're putting out Hocus Pocus Legos, but but all right, all right. Enough of the movie. Enough of the movie stuff. We'll also be putting out a regular episode next week. I have a I have an incredible lineup uh for the rest of this month and then into next month um off the top of my head i haven't got i got off the top of my head next week we'll be talking with uh brad martin from green mountain metal detecting again and his buddy eddie um and we're we're going to go over some lost new england treasures so you know, Brad's he's, he's the the professional treasure hunter out of the bunch. Um, well, I guess him and Eddie. I I would like to believe that I'm a treasure hunter, uh, but I'm not. So I'm gonna read them some stories that I have in a book. Let's see if I let me pull the book up really quick. I got it right right here in my my bookshelf. Let's see. I know I got it here somewhere. Buried Treasures of New England by W.C. Jameson. And this W.C. Jameson guy, he is, he's incredible too. This guy, he's got buried treasure stories from from all over. He's got some crazy stories. Um, But yeah, so I got this Buried Treasures of New England book. And I plan on on taking some some of the stories out of the book, reading them to to Brad and Eddie, seeing what they think. Brad, he is a skeptic, uh, so let's see if we can convince him that some of these these treasures are out there. What else do I have? Um, I have an interview set up with. Uh, Tom Pollard again. We're gonna we're gonna dive deep into some Yeti lore. You know, there's nobody better to talk to about the Yeti than someone who's actually been to the Himalayas. You know, <laughs> right? That's where the Yeti lives. Uh, I've obviously never been there. Tom has been there several times. I mean, the Himalayas is a mountain range. He's been to Everest. Uh, which is in this, you know, the Himalayan mountain range. So, so 
he can speak to the area way better than I can. He's planning on doing his own research. He doesn't know a whole lot about the topic, but, but that's all right. Uh, so that's going to be fun. I am planning. I also have an interview set up with with Adventure Explorer Discover, uh, the YouTuber I worked with a couple weeks back for the Beale Treasure. Uh, we're going to put together a show that deals with the Skinwalker. And I know that we went over... Um, you know that we went over the the Windigo already, but we're also gonna talk a little about the Windigo. You know, I uh, I don't want to say I want to set the record straight, but you know, I I often hear um people talk about the the Wendigo, uh, as if it it's a creature that lives you know all over the all over the country, which it it clearly doesn't. It comes from certain spot, you know the the Northeast. Uh, you know, maybe a little central, but uh, but yeah, it it, it it's got a range, and it, it apparently likes to stick to that range, um, as well as the Skinwalker. You know, a lot of people bring it up as if it's some some type of 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 dogman like creature, which is not. I mean, it's a it's a supernatural. It's it's a uh. It's a witch or wizard type of creature, you know. It's a it's a shamanistic, supernatural shamanistic um, skin. I I don't know how to describe it really. You know, it's not necessarily a creature. It's a it's a skinwalker. It's a a black magic practitioner who who is able to shape shift, shape shift, shape shift into you know this in an animal uh, form it's not necessarily a you know a, a wild animal that's running around the woods it's it's definitely not that so i'm hoping to do that for my 50 or uh, my 1 year anniversary episode we're going to collaborating with Ad- adventure explore discover and i also have um it's it's not it's not really something we've ever covered but the the man in question his name is Chris Buckley he is just he's he's incredible he he's incredible he is a um he once belonged to you know a lot of these these heavily racist groups the the KKK and the I I don't exactly remember which groups he was a part of, but he's completely turned around. Now he's fighting back against uh, these groups. So I have an I have an interview set up with with him. I think it's it's going to be an interesting discussion, especially in the world we live in today. Um, not exactly sure when that's going to take place. Sometime in September, but it's definitely going to be interesting. Um, and the last person on my list here is, is Daniel Cleese. Now, I'm sure some people listening know who he is. Um, might not have heard of him by name, but I'm sure the listeners have heard of the, the Hinsdale house, you know, 
haunted uh, house in, in upstate New York. Well, Daniel, he, he owns the Hinsdale house as well. A whole bunch of other paranormal <laughs> activities. I believe he works with Nick Groff a lot. Um, well, I, I have something set up with him. I'm hoping to kick off spooky season. Uh, I, I think, I think we, we set it up for the end of September. Um, anyway, I, I know, I, I know I set it up close to October to kick off spooky season, um, with a great interview with, with, with Daniel. So, so yeah, that, that's my, that's my, my lineup for shows to, to expect. It's a lot to pull off, um, with a newborn, my my son will definitely be born by then. Uh, but that's all right. He, he's a third one. This is a it's gonna be a cakewalk. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I didn't just um. Where's some wood? I need to knock on some wood. All right, all right, all right. So today's episode that that's enough of 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 housekeeping. Actually, there there was one other thing. So I was. Listening to to last week's episode with Alexander Petakov, and and I noticed I had I had slurred some words a couple times. Um, I know I'm just a a humble backwoods Vermonter, but but this was bad. Like even I noticed it several times. So what I wanted to do was, you know, I wanted to to warm up my vocal pipes a little a little bit before uh we get into the heart of today's episode so why don't let's see let's see what we got here all right Uh, she sells seashells by the seashore see that wasn't that hard Let's see how many of these these tongue twisters I can get through. I'm I'm assuming I could probably get through the next one, and that's probably it. We surely shall see the sunrise soon. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that one's getting edited out. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to to get warmed up a little bit here. Uh, before we get into the good stuff. So let's just pause for a quick word from our sponsors. All right, guys, what is up? It is me again. So our listenership has had a huge influx of listeners, but no reviews. Now, what gives? Uh, So do me a favor. If you're listening to this right now, please pause the show. Give us a five-star rating and a positive review. Uh, And if you feel up to the task, Give me a shout, contact me, and I will send you a free sticker for your trouble. All right, that's all I had to say. Now let's get back to the show. So those of you who are paying attention last week may have noticed that there was a point when I was going over the congressional hearing uh, with the UAPs. There was a point where I listed off some examples of of some crashed UFOs. Uh, and I had listed two examples, but then I had talked about three. Well, I had taken uh, the third example out because I am going to cover it today. 
Um, so UFO stories, they don't, they don't really do it for me. Like, they're cool, and I know they're super popular, but there's just something about a UFO story that, you know, I it when you're outside and you see something in the sky and it's flying around and you don't know what it is, you're like, oh my god, it's a UFO, well, I can't believe I'm seeing this, or, you know, like, 99.9% of the time, that is something that is completely explainable. Um... And that's, I feel like that's all UFO stories. But every now and then, you run into one that is just completely mind-boggling. Um, like today's topic. Now, I had often heard about this Brazilian UFO crash. Um... And I never thought much of it because, oh, it's Brazil. Like, why? I'm not going to pay attention to something that happens in Brazil. I really don't care. Uh, reading about this and watching this great documentary by um, James Fox called Moment of Contact about this UFO crash in Brazil. And it really got me thinking that when David Rush in the congressional hearings brought up how the government is in possession of, he, he called them biologics. So when David tells Congress that the, that the government is in possession of biologics, I don't know exactly what he said. You know, this might be what he was talking about. It's crazy. So, you know, obviously we, we all know about Roswell and, and how they supposedly removed alien bodies from, you know, that crash site there in, in New Mexico. But the thing about Roswell is it happened in, in I believe the forties, you know, late forties, maybe, maybe early fifties. Uh, and then nobody thought anything of it until, you know, the seventies, the mid seventies. So a lot of what was there was lost. Um, people had to go back and investigate, you know, clearly, 30 years had passed, um, four, you know, almost 40 years had passed in between the event and when people started investigating it. So, so who really knows what happened at Roswell? Um, however, today's episode happened 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, the 1996 Virginia, Brazil UFO crash is definitely one of, if not the most important UFO alien encounter. It involves people watching, seeing this UFO crash. It involves aliens running amok in the street, um, people dying, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of civilians being involved that were, you know, sworn to secrecy and 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 threatened uh with their lives this this is this is an event that that I don't even feel prepared enough to cover on today's episode but but I'm going to try uh so yeah when when David Grush talks about the US government being uh in possession of 
biologics, alien biologics. Um, I believe this is where he got that that idea from. And we will get into how the U.S. is involved towards the end of our story. However, the majority of this tale takes place in Brazil in the little... I don't want to say little town because it's not a little town. It's a it's a fairly large town, a uh, small city of Virginia. Um. So yeah, let let's just let's let's get into it. There's a lot to cover, a lot to go over, and I'm gonna do my best <laughs> to state the facts to the best of my ability. So, Brazil. Widely known as the largest country in South America, um, home of the world famous festival known as Carnival and the monumental statue of Jesus Christ known as Christ Redeemer uh, that overlooks the city of Rio de Janeiro. Um, we all know exactly what statue I'm talking about. It's huge. You can't miss it. You, you've definitely seen it. Uh Two-thirds of the world's largest river, which is the Amazon uh, by volume, flow through Brazil's rainforest and empties into the the Atlantic Ocean along its, its northeast coast. Like, Brazil is huge. It's right there. Uh, I don't even need to explain where it is. Every, everyone knows where Brazil is. Um, so I found this. I was trying to find, you know, some history of Brazil. And this has nothing to do with aliens, but I did find it quite interesting. Uh, evidence of human habitation in Brazil go back to at least the Upper Paleolithic period, thanks to the discovery of what has been named the Luzia woman, uh, the skeleton of a 20-year-old woman that was discovered in 1974 within the Vermilha Cave uh, system at the Lopa Vermilha archaeological site. It was under 40 feet of settlement uh, in the state of Minas Gerais, uh, Bolivia. Uh, Brazil is made up of 26 states, much like the United States is made up of 50 states. Brazil has 26 states as well as a federal district, much like, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. So Minas Gerais is is one of these states. And it's actually I, I I included this little bit of of this little tidbit of history because it's it's actually the same state that that um our story takes place in. So I I, I don't know. I just wanted to include it. I, I felt like it, it it's not necessarily re- relevant, but it is interesting. Uh you know, maybe maybe a UFO crashed twelve twelve thousand years ago and these these, you know, these ancient people, these Luzia women and Luzia men, uh, they also saw the, you know, maybe not the same UFO, but a UFO from the same aliens. I don't know. Who knows? They might have because Brazil is known as a UFO hotspot. There's tons of activity has been going on there for decades now. Uh, so. The bones of this Luzia woman, uh, as well as charcoal found uh, next to the bones, they were dated 
between 11,243,000 years ago and 11,710,000 years ago, uh, making the Luzia woman one of the oldest humans to be found in the Americas. So she was around five feet tall. And she had died due to some sort of accident or animal attack. Uh, science would suggest that Luzia's people, a population of Paleo-Indians from Southeast Asia that had most likely migrated down the Pacific coastline in boats skipping over North America altogether, uh, had settled in Brazil around 11,000 years ago. So that's that. It's nothing to do with aliens. It's just very interesting. I found it. I just found it interesting that that was it. So, Virginia, Virginia, Brazil. It's a medium-sized town. It's actually quite large. A uh, small city located in the state of Minas Gerais, uh, which is the second most populous state in Brazil. So, this is when we get into the story. There's a lot of information being thrown around, and I'm going to work, try my best to convey everything that I had discovered. And, and I got a lot of the information from this, this moment of contact um, documentary by James Fox. And he's, he's put other uh, documentaries out, such as The Phenomenon, I think. Let's see. Let me bring up his filmography so yeah james fox he's put out he's known for several other ufo documentaries including uh i know what i saw the phenomenon which is supposedly phenomenal <laughs> but yeah james fox he's the director of this of this documentary called the uh, moment of contact and that's where i got most of this information from so <clears throat> our story starts on January 13th, 1996. So someone, a whistleblower from the Six Coma radio station, which is just like Brazil's, uh, you know, we have NORAD, you know, which watches the skies. Um, they they have these Comar stations, which kind of just keep track of what's going on around them. So uh six Comar radio station as well as Brazilian Air Force reported that NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, oh, and notes keep disappearing, reported that NORAD initially contacted Brazil uh on the 13th of January, telling them that or, or around the 12th or 13th of January, telling them that something was entering the atmosphere and would likely be crashing down to Earth somewhere uh, in southeastern Brazil, most likely in the state of Minas Gerais, near the city of Virginia. Whether they believed it was a spaceship or like a defunct Soviet satellite, you know, nobody really knows. But it's thought that the U.S. government wanted to warn the Brazilian government ahead of time in hopes of cutting some sort of deal you know, to pick up what was left behind after it had, it had crashed to Earth. Uh, because they, they knew, you know, obviously the, the American government, the U.S. government knew they couldn't make it to that location in time to, to scoop it up before anyone else saw it. You know, so they're just like, 
well, we'll tell them it's there. We'll tell them it's coming so that they can collect everything. And then we'll, we'll you know, we'll send over a, an airplane full of money and then and, and make a trade. You know, that that's what's believed. That's not that's not official, but it is official that they that they warned them that this object was incoming. It's not a you know, nobody really knows what they, the government was thinking. But so it was late. I believe that would have been on the 12th, you know, sometime around the, the late day on the 12th, like afternoon, maybe uh, early evening. And then that night, early morning of January 13th, 1996, residents of Virginia watched as a long rounded cigar shaped object about the size of a like a school minibus, you know, like like the short buses. Uh, slowly fell from the sky. It was trailing, you know, multiple people noted that it was trailing white smoke as it fell, and it looked to be attempting to remain in the sky, but would end up crashing to earth in a field about six miles outside of town. Uh, so, yeah. And it, and I'll get into it into it uh, more towards the end, but those who are interested in the story should definitely check out uh, "Moment of Contact" by, you know, James Fox. So there was this one dude named Carlos de Souza, uh, who was practically at the crash site when it came down. So so Carlos he witnessed the event early morning on January thirteenth. He was on his way to meet with friends. They were planning to fly, you know, these ultralight planes that day. Uh, so he was on the road heading out towards wherever he was going when he saw this object coming down from the sky. And in 1996, he was quoted as saying, it was floating and slowly losing altitude. It looked like a washing machine struggling, fighting to keep its altitude the side of it was completely torn and had white smoke coming out. It wasn't black smoke, like from a fire. At the time, I thought it was an aircraft in trouble, an aeroplane, so I decided to follow it. Uh, and so white smoke often indicates some sort of issue not caused by fire, you know, something internal, like uh, like coolant maybe being burned up in the engine which is definitely associated with, you know, like blown head gaskets and all this crazy stuff within the internal workings of the engine and often leads to overheating and just catastrophic failure. Um, and just a side note, when the white bird came down uh, in North America, you know, this 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 French plane that would have been the first plane to fly uh, nonstop across the Atlantic from Paris to uh, New York, it had flown across the Atlantic and multiple people recalling seeing an airplane coming in from the Atlantic, trailing white smoke. It was thought that that was the white bird and it had some sort of catastrophic engine failure, which caused it to crash. Uh, that's just a side note. Uh, this is another interesting story. I, we, we had talked about it a while ago with uh, Annette Spaulding. I don't know if you can recall back to the episode with her discovery of the ghost of Sharon Lake. Um, but yeah, so anyway, sorry, side note. Uh, 
So when James Fox and his team escorted Carlos back to the crash site, you know, in, in 2021, he told the crew that he watched the cigar-shaped object about the size of a, a short bus. Uh, and, and I got the short bus description from another couple who had seen the object fly over their farm um, before Carlos had spotted it. So they, they had been, you know, inside their their farmhouse and their animals started going wild. They went outside and they saw this object that just flew over their farm as it kept going. And it was it was clearly the same object as Carlos had seen. It was clearly the same object that had crashed in this field. But uh I didn't I didn't get their names or anything. Um so yeah, when when James Fox and his team escorted Carlos back to the crash site, he told the crew cigar shaped object uh, was flying towards the road where he was, and then it made a 360 degree turn. But the way he described it in the in the documentary, it, it looked like it made a 180 degree turn. So it kind of turned around and started flying backwards, you know, back the way it came, where it then headed. So yeah, so it headed back the way it came, uh, where it looked like it tried, you know, gained a little bit of altitude, uh, but then the engine seemed to suddenly quit and it dove nose first into the ground. Um, so in the documentary Moment of Contact, filmmaker James Fox takes Carlos to the actual crash site. So he, they're they're kind of like in the area where they believe, you know, where, where like the, the ship crashed, the UFO crashed in this area somewhere. They're driving around and Carlos is kind of telling them, yeah, it went this way and it turned around and came back. And then they're like trying to find the actual crash site. And then they find the actual crash site. Um, they're walking around, you know, this, 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 I don't know. It's just like rolling hills and, and, you know, pastures with grass and, you know, dirt everywhere. Uh, and then Carlos, he just yells out here, here, here. And he's just like, continues like here. It was right here. It was right here. Uh, and then he literally breaks down in tears at the site of the original crash site. Um, and it, it's really, it's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, right in the middle of, yeah, like these rolling hills and these grassy, grassy you know, dirt pastures spotted with, you know, there's trees here and there, uh, and a long single lane road that's just dug down in the, the red dirt. So the road is lower than, than, uh, you know, these pastures. So you have to jump up into the pad. You have to climb up, you know, this little, this little bank to get into the, these fields and they're running around and Carlos is like, it's here, it's here, it's right here. This is where, you know, he, he just keeps yelling here. It's it's actually a pretty powerful moment within the, within the documentary. He's just like here, 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 here. And he's running around. It was pretty powerful. Uh, and then, so he, he goes on to tell Fox and his crew, when I arrived at the site uh, on this very spot, I observed a lot of debris pieces. Uh, and when I got out of the car, I immediately smelled ammonia, like rotten eggs, a very strong smell, so strong that I had to cover my nose with a shirt I was wearing. My eyes got watery. Uh, 
and like I said, he he had been on his way to to fly ultralight planes. Uh, so he was, you know, somewhat of an amateur pilot himself. Uh, and he he had thought that he had initially thought that this was an airplane coming down. Um, and he wanted to help, you know, whoever whoever survived the crash. So when he got out, he immediately realized this was no plane crash. Um, and it's mainly for the smell associated uh, with this this craft that he knew it wasn't an airplane. Also, for the debris that was scattered throughout the field, he said it looked like aluminum and that it was extremely light. But when he picked up a piece and kind of like crumpled it up, he bent it up and he crumpled it and then he let go of it and it sprung back to its original form, uh, which was, you know, obviously not like any metal that that we have. Uh, you know, you you can bend metal and it'll spring back to its original form, but he like crumped it up, crumpled it up into a ball and uh, it just kind of you know, bounce back into its original form. Uh, and then he says, within minutes, the Brazilian military arrived on the scene. Uh, and they were coming from the nearby Brazilian Army Non-Commissioned Officer Academy, a.k.a. the ESA, ESA military base, which was only 18 miles away. Uh, Carlos de Souza recalls multiple trucks arriving at the field where the UFO had crashed. They then ordered D'Souza to leave at gunpoint. So they had, you know, they were pointing guns at him. They were telling him to go away, go away, go away, get out of here. Uh, and this wasn't the only threat D'Souza would receive that night. So on his way home, he, he, he totally forgets about, uh, flying these ultralight planes and he just wants to go home after what he's witnessed um so on his way home he stops at a gas station where he is then confronted by a man in black uh who exited a black chevy impala and this this man in black kind of threatens him and his family to remain quiet and carlos would remain quiet for 26 years he had, he would never return to the site again, um, and he would never speak. The only interview Carlos ever gave was the one single interview he gave in 1996, just after the UFO crash. Uh, and so Carlos would head back to town, back to Virginia, uh, where he remembers several blocks being cordoned off, um, you know, residents of these areas were being uh, evacuated and other residents were being kept from entering, you know, these certain streets. There was no, I didn't get like which streets were blocked off or not, but certain certain areas of Virginia were being, you know, essentially locked down. And then nothing really happens for seven days. You know, there's the there's the UFO crash. And then everything is kind of silent for seven days until January 20th, 1996. So there are some, you know, there's some major players within this story. Carlos is one of them. Uh, so there's three coming up right now. I want to talk about them. 
which takes place about 3 o'clock, 3.30 in the afternoon. And then I'm going to jump back to the, that morning. But for now, let's talk about Lillian Silva, Valkyra Silva, and Katia Xavier Andrade. So these three girls, Valkyra was 14, Lillian was 16, and Katia was, oh, I forget how old she was. She was like 21 or something like that. She was an older uh, family friend. They were walking home from helping a friend pack up the last of their belongings before moving. Uh, when they decided to take a shortcut through an empty lot, uh, when they spotted something that would change their lives uh, forever. So, afternoon, 3 o'clock, 3.30, January 20th, 1996. Uh, Katia Xavier is, is quoted as saying, it wasn't a man, it wasn't an animal, it was something different. Now, what it was, I cannot say, I can't describe it. So that wasn't that. That's that's just a quick quote uh, of the events that are about to happen. So they're walking through this empty lot, and that's exactly what it is. It's an empty lot, you know. There's there's buildings on both sides, and just nothing in the middle. And so they're walking through this lot. When Valkyra Silva spotted the creature first, um, they they were walking through this empty lot. When Valkyra she sees this, you know, this depiction of something painted on the wall, one one of the walls of this this alleyway. It's not an alleyway; it, it is an empty lot. So she sees one, uh, you know, a depiction of something on this this empty lot wall and she walks over to it she's she's ahead of her sister and her friend uh and it would turn out valkyra was only eight or so feet away from what was essentially a hunched over creature uh it was huddled under this wall not under it but at the bottom of this wall you know it's a pretty tall wall it's the side of a building um so this creature would be it was huddled under this wall essentially what i believe no one ever really mentions it but it sounds like the creature was seeking shade you know the shade with within this wall uh and and valkyra would say guys look at that pointing to you know whatever was painted on this wall which then caused the creature to turn around and face them and when it did they got a very good look at it uh they were called its skin looking wet slimy um they they said oily something that's gonna pop up over and over again this this description of of skin being oily uh almost as though the heat of the day was making it sweat which they thought was causing it some sort of excruciating pain uh they also remember the creature being small with v-shaped feet having large very large red eyes spots on its skin almost like veins that you could see uh that like almost protruded through the skin as well as three large bumps on its head almost like it it was growing horns or something uh the creature was shaky or almost wobbly and the girls believed it to be sick or injured and they all seemed to make mention to when they when they made eye contact with the creature, almost like they got some sort of, 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 uh, you know, made some sort of psychic connection with it. They all believed it to be in pain or sick and sad. 
Um, it was they definitely believed that it was almost more afraid of them than they were of it. Uh, it didn't try to attack them or anything. It just kind of stood there looking at them. Uh, and then they got scared and ran off at the time. I don't know. Maybe they still are. They were very uh, Catholic and they believed that they had seen the devil <laughs> and uh, they they just they got the hell out of there. But yeah, over and over again in, in all these interviews, they bring up how how they believe the creature was sick and afraid of them and that it looked very sick, uh, which is another description that's going to come up over and over again you know, describing these, these creatures as being sick or sickly. But so yeah, after realizing this was something unknown, the three of the girls would then run home, believing they had, had seen the devil later on. Dr. John Mack, the very well-known American psychologist and who investigated psychic connections between abductees uh, and aliens went to Virginia to interview the three girls uh, he wanted to know if their description of the creature being scared, sad, and sick were simply a, assumptions that they had made or or they had received those uh those thoughts as as you know through some kind of psychic message you know when the, that they had received when making eye contact with the being uh and his conclusions are unknown he believed that what they saw was real, that they believed what they saw was real. Uh, but I, I couldn't find anywhere where he confirmed that, that he believed they had made some sort of psychic connection. But he he was well known for for this. He definitely spoke. I think he was he was well known for the aerial um, the aerial school UFO. I don't know what you want to call it. UFO event. And that was when a school in, uh, I forget what country in Africa, um, Zimbabwe maybe, but there was a UFO that actually had, had landed outside of the school that gave, you know, these psychic messages to all these, uh, you know, all the, the students at the school. And he had gone there and interviewed all these kids at the aerial school. So he, he was known to do this kind of work, but it, it's unknown, what, you know, what his findings were. So, so that was that that was the afternoon, and it, it's like a well-known story. There's an uh, an artist depiction of the creature, which I'll post on you know Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever. Uh, it's a well-known story. I mean, they were interviewed over and over and over again, uh, and it's definitely one of the major stories within the Valginia saga. I don't I don't know what you want to call it. So that happened in the afternoon. And and at the time when it happened, it's also you want to keep in mind that it was sunny out. It was, you know, midday. I, I believe it was like three, three thirty, maybe four o'clock. Uh, and it was right before a storm was about to blow in. And this storm would be one of the, the biggest storms to ever hit Virginia, um, you know, in 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 recent memory. But uh. What I want to do is I want to go back to the morning of January 20th um, before, you know, the three girls, Valkyra, Lillian, and uh, Katina saw this this creature. I wanted to go back to the morning of January 20th. Um, I do want to mention that we're kind of bouncing from January 13th 
which was the date of the crash to January 20th. <clears throat> However, in between those days, there were dozens and dozens of, of uh, you know, calls to the fire station where people were seeing mysterious creatures in the woods. And the fire station kind of acts as, you know, they're the ones who get rid of these dangerous, poisonous animals. You know, they capture and relocate. So there's no, like, uh, animal control. It's it's all done by the fire department, which is also part of the military. Um, so we're going from the afternoon of January 20th to the morning. Now, this is like an unsubstantiated encounter. It's kind of like hearsay. Uh, you know, they mention it in some older interviews and some older uh, documentaries that, you know, you, you see on TV uh like i think one was on the sci-fi channel um but yeah so this is this is kind of like you know one of the the last of the calls that had come into the fire department about these these small mysterious red-eyed creatures that had been seen in the woods bordering you know the the town so so this event was said to have taken place mid-morning on january 20th i guess it starts off a little earlier so at at eight o'clock uh that morning a man anonymously calls the Virginia firefighters uh, and says that a weird animal is in the the Andre public garden. Uh, firefighters don't seem to act very fast. And, and, they, and they arrive about 10 o'clock that morning. This location where five civilians have been watching one of the creatures as it slowly made its way down a steep embankment, uh, kind of making its way towards the woods. Some children that were there had even thrown rocks at it to try to get some sort of reaction out of it. But one of the women that was that was also watching this creature do whatever it was doing kind of put a stop to that. Um, but apparently, as the firefighters are arriving, the military arrived as well. Um, and apparently there was a representative of a, a Secret Service division of the Army called the S-2 Um he was also on scene as well. And then together, these soldiers, so a couple firefighters, a couple army members, and this this S2 guy, uh, they would climb down a hill and they kind of corralled the the clearly sick creature. So they they realized that it was also sick, much like like the girls would mention later on that day. Uh and they would eventually use a dog net to capture it. Um those who had been watching were then sworn to secrecy as the creature was loaded onto one of the trucks by itself. So apparently the, uh, you know, all these soldiers were too afraid to travel with it. Um, there were reports that the military would return to the site later that day and take up to five more creatures from the woods, uh, you know, on the opposite side of this embankment. So kind of like where this, this original creature was heading to. Uh, the military would take five more of these creatures and even killing one, shooting it three times in the chest with a, with a, with a foul, an FAL. Uh, and anyone who plays Call of Duty knows what, what that is or any sort of video game. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't, I mean, this is like, it's just a report. You know, it's on some sort of, uh, let's see, what what is it on? It's on some sort of, you know, ancient blog 
you know, it's not Reddit, but it, it's something that's been around for a while. Uh, so who knows if it even really happened. Uh, but there are names of individuals. Um, let's see what I can get. They mentioned the name of a 20-year-old student named Hildo Lucio Galvino, as well as a roofer named Hen- Henrik Jose, who apparently were, were on top of a roof nearby uh, that were able to, to kind of see you know, the same thing that these, these five other citizens were watching. Um, and another thing that seems to keep popping up is that these creatures, they're emitting some sort of, you know, horrible, horrible smell, a smell of ammonia or, uh, uh, you know, they, they keep saying ammonia and rotten eggs. But when I think of rotting eggs, I think of sulfur, you know, not necessarily ammonia. When I think of ammonia, I think of like a litter box or, you know, hasn't been cleaned and. I don't know, a week. Uh so they're they're definitely two different different smells, but you 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 know, it's it's something that you hear over and over again throughout this this event is that, you know, these creatures were emitting this this horrible smell of ammonia and rotting eggs, uh, and that their skin was extremely oily. And the same goes for this one that was caught uh with the net. I mean they're it had this horrible smell. Its skin was super oily. Um, and, and none of these creatures seemed to be fighting back either. So the one that the, the three girls had seen, uh, it didn't do anything. It just kind of looked at them, you know, in fear. They they had mentioned how scared it was. The one that the firefighters and, and army soldiers had captured, it just kind of, it didn't fight back at all, you know, it just let them capture it. Um, and there was one description here that kind of got my attention. Uh, let's see, I'm going to read it directly from this, directly from this this blog here. Uh, the firefighters capture the creature with a net. It was about one meter tall with oily skin, red eyes, and three fingers and emitting a smell of ammonia. And emitting a buzzing sound of bees. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really know what to make of that. So it, it's making a buzzing sound. Is that like a, you know, like, is it like bees or maybe like a purring sound like a cat? Who knows? And I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how, how uh, much stock you want to put into the, these encounters either. Because they're, they're throwing out a, a, a hell of a lot of names. Apparently this was this, this operation to capture this. This creature was ordered by General Sergio Como Lima, and and will uh, General Lima he he'll pop up towards the end. I got a little something from him as well. So yeah, like like I had mentioned later on that afternoon, around two o'clock, more witnesses saw that the soldiers they had gone into the woods, and uh, they would shoot one of those one of those creatures three times, and they would capture up to four others putting them you know in these these bags kind of carrying them out like they were uh captured dogs or ca- or cats or something you know uh they have names for these these soldiers who would supposedly go into the woods that afternoon as well but i don't i don't 
I don't necessarily know if I need to name off all these names. You know, there's like Colonel Olympio Wonderly, Captain Ramirez, Lieutenant Tibero, Major Marcel, Sergeant Pedrosa, and the Secret Service member would be Corporal Sevilio, Corporal Sherez, Soldiers Baselo and Malelo, who were were military police. So I don't know. I mean. They there's sure are a lot of names involved, um, and I, I I I don't know I just don't know how much stock I want to put in into these um, these encounters that involve all these names of these people who who haven't been interviewed. We definitely know that the three girls, as well as Carlos de Souza, we definitely know they have repeated what they saw over and over again. So that was in the morning, and then. Around 3 o'clock, the girls see their creature in the empty lot. And then around 6 or 7 o'clock that evening, you know, it said about three hours later, two military police officers were driving on a road near the empty lot. That that would be the empty lot that the girls uh, saw their creature at. So they were driving near this empty lot uh, when a creature almost, it, it very well could have been the same exact creature to be seen by the girls, ran out in front of, you know, their police car. Officer Marco Cherez, uh exited his vehicle and chased the creature down, capturing it barehanded. Uh, Officer Cherez and his partner, we'll get into him a little later, then transported the creature to Humanitas Hospital in Virginia. So, so where they where this is all taking place is like on the very outskirts of town. Um, and so this this officer, Marco Cherez, he he literally captures the creature barehanded. He like bear hugs it. He wraps it in his jacket uh, and he's holding it in the police car. Uh, and they rush to the hospital. It was reported that the creature left a greasy, sticky residue on the officer's clothes and his skin as well as, and some reports say that it had scratched him somewhere along his arms. This residue was also incredibly smelly. And when, you know, I'm assuming it would enter uh, the scratch on, on Sherez's skin. You know, some reports say he was scratched. Some don't mention that at all. Uh, who knows? All we know for sure is that that officer Sherez Marco Sherez, he he literally captured this creature barehanded. Officer Marco Sherez would quickly develop an infection that couldn't be combated. So within several weeks, you know, within a week he was sick. Within several weeks he was very sick. Uh, he never told the doctors about the event with the slimy creature, believing he would get better as well as, you know, he had been ordered to secrecy, not to mention what had happened, not to mention the creature. Um, but as he realized he wasn't going to pull through, he told his sister that he had been involved in an uh, incredible event. He still didn't want to tell her everything that went down, but he told her enough that she knew something had happened within the military uh and that it was most likely there her brother uh, was dying. So so Marco would die from this infection in early February. 
doctors would tell his family that an autopsy wasn't needed uh, and that even though everything was quote-unquote fine, his body should be buried as soon as possible, which is clearly uh, fishy. (laughs) Something had happened to him. You know, I, as well as everybody else who has investigated this, believes it has something to do with that oily residue that on these creatures' skin and that some sort of space disease got in his system and killed him. His sister, Marta, so you have Marco and Marta, uh, she would end up getting his death report after paying uh, an extremely ridiculous amount of money for it. And would find that even though multiple pages were missing, uh, the doctors did find an unknown toxic substance within his body, uh, which was obviously whatever that slimy, oily shit is that was all over these these alien creatures. Uh, Fox and his team would attempt to contact Eric Lopes, who was Marco's partner. And the only other individual with Marco that night, however, Eric refused to talk and even threatened them, telling telling them to leave or he would shoot them. So so they weren't able to talk to him. Eric, this Eric Lopes guy has never came forward with any sort of statement or story or so he's he's kind of an unknown. So that would all happen throughout the day on January twentieth. Now I think on the night you know, that night, later that night, or early morning, January 21st, there's like a, a bunch of random a- accounts of, of things that, that goes on. So I'm going to start with, uh, in the the documentary, uh, a radiologist told Fox and his team that a military convoy pulled up to his hospital and brought in a black body bag. The military personnel then told him to x-ray uh, the deceased's head, cervical spine, torso, and his arms and legs, uh, all from within the bag. He was then sworn to secrecy, you know, told not to talk about what had just happened. Uh, they would not let him look at any of the pictures he had taken or within the bag, and that was that. And then they would talk with a an anonymous individual, uh, who worked for the military that they referred to as a man named military X. This would be the first time he was coming forward. Uh, He would tell the crew that he was involved in transporting the body of a creature, much like the one brought in by Marco uh, to the nearby ISA, you know, army base, military base. Uh, Military X recalls being ordered to prep some vehicles for a mission where he would then follow some unmarked trucks into the city. They stopped in Virginia uh, for a while. This is where he realized the unmarked trucks belonged to the Army's Secret Service, which was the S-2. You know, we had talked earlier about some of these random S-2 agents being with, you know, some of these military soldiers, these Army soldiers. They were then given the order to back, and they were taking orders from the these S2 agents. So they were given orders to back the trucks into the Humanitas Hospital. He, for some reason, enters the building with 
DS2 guys and goes to a room with several other soldiers and doctors studying something in a box that was, you know, a, I think it was, I think he said it was a wooden box on top of, you know, you know, one of these stainless steel uh, examination tables, you know. This military ex remembers, he, he remembers a, uh, an army soldier filming what was going on. And then at one point, the soldier filming stops. You know, he's like, he's so, uh, he's so shocked by what he's filming. He just kind of stops and lets the, the camera hang at his side. He remembers uh, doctors and military officials analyzing the body of a dead creature that they had. Uh, so it was a stainless steel box atop an examination table. So they had the creature inside this box. And in the documentary, it shows the creature's head and torso covered with, you know, some sort of, of sheet, but its legs were sticking out. Um, and then military X states, it looked like they all seemed scared of it. And when I looked, I saw something different, a different creature with skin very oily, a lot of oil, like silicone. Seeing that, I got scared. Military X also makes reference to the being's foot and the unique V shape that it made, knowing it wasn't human after. So he knew it wasn't human after seeing uh, its foot. And he references the foot by doing the, the Vulcan salute. He says it was like this, and he holds his hand up in a V shape. So he, he kind of, you know, the, the Vulcan salute, uh, practically two fingers. What led me to believe this wasn't a human being was the foot, he says. He's then kicked out of the hospital room, uh, sent back to the trucks and where they would then transport the creature to the ESA base. Uh, his superiors end up calling him in to one of their offices where there's like he says there's a bunch of random officers and within this room, I guess. Uh, and they're all kind of looking at him funny. He remains silent. And they ask him some, you know, like, what did you see? And blah, blah, blah. And he doesn't know if he should lie or, or, or tell the truth. And I forget what he says. But then, you know, his commanding officer says, uh, tells him that what he saw was supernatural and that he can't ever talk about it or you know, and, you know, kind of like what they've said to everyone else who has seen one of these, one of these creatures. And then apparently early, you know, before that creature had arrived at the hospital, apparently it had been transported. So there's a bunch of, you know, all these random accounts from all these random people. And apparently uh, the creature had been transported to the ISA military base the isa army base and it had been alive and it was quickly realized that the base didn't have the medical equipment needed to keep this alien creature alive so they transported it to the regional hospital which also was unequipped to handle this creature uh and then that was when it was brought to the humanitas hospital uh where military x would would pick it up and bring it back to the isa army base these creatures were said to have claws that were supposedly sharp enough to slice through a wooden table like butter. 
They had like talons on their toes that were, I guess, extremely sharp, but it didn't seem like they were using them as weapons. And the night of January 20th, uh, morning of the 21st was just marked by an influx of UFO sightings and encounters. There were just dozens and dozens of people saying they had seen UFOs flying around. They had seen more of these creatures running around. Uh, people thought that it was like in some sort of alien invasion going on. They weren't sure. Um, nobody really knew what seemed to be going on. And there's one in interesting account from the 21st, the night of the 21st. There was a woman attending a party uh, at the Virginia Zoo. She went out to smoke a cigarette on this this downstairs balcony, like a deck. Uh, she, and then she saw the head and neck of a creature that that popped up above the balcony railing. Uh, the first thing that caught her attention were its big red eyes. Uh, but unlike you know most of the cre all of the creatures that had been seen throughout uh, Virginia. Uh, they were all, they all had big red eyes. Like that was the first thing everybody had noticed, these big red eyes. Uh, however, this one, she says, was wearing some sort of golden helmet on its head. And this would be the first creature reported wearing any sort of, of helmet or whatever it was. So around this time, multiple animals would turn up dead throughout the zoo. And they were thought to have been poisoned by an unknown toxin, just like Officer Marco. So a former Brazilian Air Force traffic controller claims that on January 22nd, the United States Air Force landed unannounced without the proper authorization in Campinas, a city in the neighboring state of, of Sao Paulo. They then sent out two helicopters to Virginia and collected something brought it back to Campinas, landed, uh, and then loaded everything into a C-7 transport plane and then left. Rumor is the U.S. agents collected bodies, both dead and alive, of these creatures uh, that had been captured throughout the, the last couple days, as well as all the crash debris. It's believed by many investigators that you know, a secret sect of U.S. officials were able to strike a deal with the Brazilian government so that the U.S. would be able to collect all the evidence uh, in the bits of this flexible metal. Uh, and I think it's believed that there were at least eight creatures that were captured and up to three of them were reported dead and five were still alive. Uh, and so these would be the the biologics David Grush had told Congress about. This is where this comes in. Uh, you know, it's just, I don't know, maybe that maybe we did get some from Area 51. Who knows? But but this this encounter is so this UFO event is so it's so fresh that that these uh alien creatures that were captured alive. I mean, they could still be alive today. Um, so that was pretty much the the Virginia incident. You know, it's a you know it mostly happens on the twentieth and the twenty first, but it really it takes place over 
you know, from the 13th through the 20th, 21st, and 22nd when the U.S. government shows up to to take everything. So apparently a couple little things happen. Uh, apparently Luzia, mother of the two girls who had seen the alien, the two sisters, uh, she was met at the door one night by four men in crisp, pressed white Armani suits who offered her $20,000 if she could convince her daughters uh, to publicly state their contact with the alien was nothing but a joke. She would refuse the money, stating she wouldn't force uh, her daughters to lie. You know, they would try to offer more money and she would refuse they they would threaten her and say they'd be back, but they would never return. James Fox says that there's a 35-second video, which is most likely video taken by the military, uh, either from when Military X was there and they were filming the dead, uh, you know, the dead body of that creature at the hospital. Or there's off also some some shady reference of video made from one of these creatures refusing to eat or drink, you know, this fruit and water that, that was offered to it by the military. So, but he states that this video has already made its rounds around Capitol Hill uh, behind closed doors, um, of course, but that hopefully it, it will be released soon. You know, who knows when that'll be if it will be at all. Um, there was a couple interesting quotes. And so, so here's the, the aftermath, the, uh, the events that, you know, the cover up involved uh, some quotes that, that I found interesting. So th- this quote was in the documentary uh, and it, it's, um, it was said by a retired uh, Brazilian Air Force General, Huos Carlos Perita, tells filmmaker James Fox in his documentary, Moment of Contact, that governments tend to cover up everything they can't explain to their population. You know, obviously that's a, an interesting quote, especially since he was a general in the Air Force, you know, deep in the military. I'm sure he knows plenty of things that were covered up. Uh, So in 2010, the Brazilian government, in the form of its military, would start an official inquiry into the girls' sighting. And they would come to a much different conclusion. They would conclude that the girls had come across a little homeless man that was called Little Louis. This man supposedly had unique features that matched the girls' description. Uh, and he was, you know, said to be mentally unstable and most likely very dirty due to the heavy rains that had gone on. It's fact that the girls had seen this creature before the huge storm that would roll in that night. Um, and they they had made reference multiple times that they knew who Little Lewis was and it definitely was not Little Lewis. Um, the military would also say 
that they had to transfer an exhumed body of a young man who was the son of a well-to-do politician who had died and been buried unexpectedly in, in his cell after being arrested for theft. So, so he had he had been arrested and then died, and then before they they could like parents or anything could see the body or whatever, they had buried this this man. Uh, so they had to re you know they had to exhume his body so that the family could get an autopsy done. Um. It was later discovered that this incident had happened a week after the Virginia event. Um, they had also attributed the sudden military presence as nothing more than routine training and stated that the aliens seen within the hospital were nothing more than a couple with dwarfism who are about to have a baby. Um, so they were expecting... Uh, they were at the hospital, the white, you know, the the man's wife about to give birth, and that everyone thought that these these dwarves were were the aliens. Um, and on May eighth, General Lima, we mentioned him earlier. He he had ordered the killing of one of those creatures and the capturing of five others. Uh, on May eighth, General Lima holds a press conference. And as he's walking out, a reporter asks, what were you doing that day? And, and General Lima says, we were working for the army and for the nation. Uh, the reporter then says, can you prove it? General Lima says, prove to whom? Uh, the reporter then asks, says, to the press. General Lima re replies, why? The reporter says, don't you want to prove the facts you just said? General Lima says, I don't have to prove what I said. I've already said everything I'm going to say. And then he walks out. And that was that was it. That was the only uh, information that he would give on the events that had transpired between January 13th, 1996, and January 22nd, 1996. Now, let's see here. I have a book. Let's see if I can dig it up really quick. It's an old book. The World of the Unknown, UFOs. I believe I had rented this book from the library back in elementary school and never gave it back. It's from 1977. Um, it's just a book of... UFOs in history and UFOs all over the world. Close encounters. Sorry, I'm trying to find a certain event. Encounters in space. Um, odd aircraft. UFOs on the screen. Hunting and faking. Mistaken identity, life in outer space. Here we go. UFO knots, encounters of the third kind. The tiny goblin creature on the right was one of five apparently seen in 1955 by a farming family in Kentucky when the farmer shot at it. They heard a metallic sound, but the creatures seem unhurt. 
A few minutes later, it peered through one of the farmhouse windows, and when one of the farmers ventured outside, a silvery hand inquisitively brushed the man's hair. The creature became known as the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblin. Uh, when when I when I heard of the 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 Virginia creatures, um, and what they looked like, they were short. Um, they had big red eyes. Um, you know, long arms, short legs, short little torsos. You know, brown skin. I instantly thought of the, these uh, Hopkinsville goblins. Um, which which almost match the the description of the Virginia uh, creatures, except for you know the red eyes and these these goblins. They they had pointy ears, and no one had ever mentioned anything about the the ears of these creatures. But I, I just I don't know. I wanted to read that. I I thought that it it was very interesting. Um piqued my my interest i instantly thought of of that little encounter but but yeah that is the virginia brazil ufo encounter of 1996 it's definitely seen as one of if not the most important um encounter with a ufo as well as a uh EBE, an extraterrestrial biologic biologic entity, um, and it's most likely the prime example uh, David Grush would have given to the members of the congressional hearing um, when he had told them that the United States government is in possession of. Uh, extraterrestrial biologics so i'm sure there's other uh ufo encounters out there where we may have received um you know bodies of these the pilots or or creatures that were involved um you know there's like i said there's roswell who really knows what we got out of there it's just happened so long ago and there's such a huge gap in between investigating it that I, I think it's it's hard to tell what really went on there. But but this this Virginia incident happened in 1996. Like that was oh, I was I was I was six years old then. I was, five, you know, almost six years old at that point. Uh, it's just it wasn't that long ago. These creatures could still be alive and just it, it definitely reinvigorated my my attitude towards you know these ufo encounters it's just nothing nothing that really ever interested me like i believe there's aliens out there i just don't i don't know i don't you never hear about any of these these really cool uh encounters i feel like all they really all you really hear about are this person saw this or this person saw that so so i was i was happy to uh to really find out what the Virginia incident was about. Um, and I'm I'm damn sure that we still have at least the corpses of these creatures on ice somewhere. Um, and that definitely sounds almost canon to me.